You are listening to Single Sirs. My name is Arno Marturay, and I am your host. Single Service is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Chris Spoke is a founder and CEO of August, a Toronto-based agency that designs and builds digital products. He's also the founder of Skyline, a weekly newsletter that tracks Toronto's growth and development, and a fierce advocate for smart, future-proof city building. Chris and I connected over a shared interest in city building, especially as it relates to the political hot potato issue of the missing middle. Here's our conversation. So thank you very much, Chris, for being on the show. I've been anticipating this chat for a long time. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, let's start with a really hard question. And uh, can you tell us who you are, what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll make good use of each of these three sentences. I do two things. Um, so the first thing I do is I run this product studio that designs and builds digital products. Um, and that keeps me pretty busy day to day. And then other than that, I have this interest, this passion in cities and urbanism and land use planning and real estate development. Um, so I dabble as far as advocacy goes, political advocacy, and a little bit as an investor. That might have been more than three sentences. Uh, nobody's going to count. <laughs> um, so why would someone like you be interested in urban issues and the missing middle specifically? Yeah, I think I came to this interest by first just being like a, a happy and proud Trontonian. I really like the city. Um, I think it's a great place to live. And I think that um, it'd be great if it continued to be a great place to live. And not just for people with a lot of money, but people of all kind of demographic stripes, all ages, um, all income levels. Um, and I think we've been seeing this trend over the last five years, especially it's been accelerated at least where it's becoming more and more expensive which means that a lot of people are either moving out of the city to city suburbs or moving to whole like other metropolitan regions altogether. So um, being interested in Toronto, wanting to see its continued success and appeal, especially to young people and people who are working on cool things. Um, it took me down this rabbit hole of trying to understand why our housing was so expensive, um, which ultimately led me to this place, um, this kind of like Yimby place, Um, where people spend a lot of time focusing on the relationship between land use rules, basically what the city allows to be built, um, and housing supply, and ultimately prices and affordability. And, and that's, that's how I got here. And so that, that interest uh, and that desire to advocate for, for the missing middle, how did it start exactly? Yeah, well, the missing middle specifically, I would say, um, you know, having gone down this path of trying to understand how it is that the city regulates land use, and how it allows for housing development to, in theory, keep up with our population growth. Although we could talk about how it's, it's not doing that at all. And, and that's why we're seeing rising prices. Um, it doesn't take you know, much uh, investigation for you to discover that Toronto's housing market is pretty bifurcated. We have these pockets of the city where there's a lot of high-rise development. So when people think about Toronto, they think about a, a high-growth city, a lot of cranes in the sky, a lot of construction sites. 
Um, but if you zoom out a little bit, if you look at like a Google map or if you're flying Bishop Airport, most of the city is low rise, basically untouchable neighborhoods. So detached houses, semi-detached houses of one or two stories. So a bunch of high rise growth in small pockets and a bunch of untouched kind of low density, low rise housing um, and not much in between. And this, of course, is is the missing middle. Um, and 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 it, it always made me curious, like you would think that as a city grew and as demand pressure grew and pushed for more housing stock, you'd see this gradual growth from like a detached house to maybe a triplex to maybe like a walk up four story apartment and ultimately redevelopment to a mid rise or high rise building. But we were seeing only the two extremes. Um, and, and my interest in this topic, my prior education in economics led me to understand that it's because of the land use rules that were implemented that we've made it basically very, very hard to build missing middle housing. So this interest of mine in the city and the city's growth has, you know, if I'm going to spend some time advocating for smarter policies, um, I think I'll, I'll spend most of that time talking about policies that would allow for more of this missing middle type, uh, type of housing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And to me, having, having not grown up in Toronto or Canada and instead in France, where a lot of the cities are much more dense and, and feel urban, for lack of a better descriptor, when I first moved to Toronto, and that was a long time ago, it baffled me. It, it just was completely foreign idea to me that you'd have single family homes in the downtown core. That right. just didn't make sense at all. Now that I've been here for a long time, it, it, I understand it better, but it's still kind of mind blowing that, you know, you go uh, in Chinatown uh, on the on the uh, east side of Spadina and you have entire blocks of single family homes. That's just crazy. Baldwin Village. And it doesn't make sense. And I think I think it's interesting because, you know, presumably we have these neighborhoods full of detached houses because that's what people in Toronto like. So they vote for councillors who will enact policies to protect these neighborhoods. But at the same time, most of us, when we travel, when we want to see beautiful cities and urban landscapes, um, it's never to cities that have these protected, you know, detached house neighborhoods. We like traveling to Europe. We pretty much like traveling to any city that grew before zoning became a major concern and major like definer of how the city grew. Yeah. So there, there's this kind of there's this kind of weird disconnect between what we like to see. I mean, when you think about a great cityscape, you think about cities like Barcelona, like Paris, these kind of like six, eight stories, extremely walkable, dense enough to support all sorts of local commercial amenities, cafes, restaurants, that sort of thing. And yet in Toronto, most of our land is reserved and protected and kept aside for yeah, basically detached houses. It is it is kind of weird. Yeah, it's it's puzzling. Hopefully that will start to change. Um, right. So can you tell us a bit more about the various things you've been doing for um, in, in advocating for the missing middle and other urban issues? Yeah, so my first um, foray, I guess, in advocacy was in 2017. Um, housing prices were rising. I kind of came to understand that land use rules were a big driver of rising housing prices. And I was looking for a group, an organization, someone basically to volunteer for to kind of participate in advancing supply side type solutions to the housing crisis. Um, and the reason that thought was even in my brain was because I saw in San Francisco, which also has a housing crisis, there were these YIMBY organizations, Yes in My Backyard organizations, that felt very innovative. And they had a solution set that I thought was compelling and, and workable. 
Um, but back in 2017, there were no such groups in Toronto, at least as far as, as I could tell. There was a group out of Vancouver called Generation Squeeze, and they were saying some of these same things, like if we want more people to have housing, we need to allow for more housing development, which sounds like a very obvious thing to say, but it was actually like pretty controversial to say that just a few short years ago. Um, so not being able to find any, any group, uh, I started hosting events. So I started inv inviting experts, land use planners, real estate developers, municipal lawyers, um, to talk to people like me who were not from the industry, but had an interest in understanding how our city was being, um, regulated and how it was growing or not, not being allowed to grow. So th that event series turned into, uh, uh an organization of a, a group of volunteers called housing matters where we tried to, again, advance this supply side, I would say, um, solution set to the housing crisis. And that took me all the way till the provincial election, which I think was about mid-2018. Mm -hmm. And that's when the PC government was elected. And from my perspective, they had a more, um, their, their, the talking points, at least, the rhetoric around how they were going to deal with housing was more aligned with what I wanted to see. So the liberal government before being voted out of power, they had recently passed a bill called Bill 139, where, among other things, they um, devolved uh, a lot of the OMB's power to the city. So the OMB, of course, is the Ontario Municipal Board. It was called the Ontario Municipal Board. And it's maybe the one good thing we have going for us in Toronto, where it's this provincial judicial check that doesn't allow the city to go too far in restricting new housing supply. And when the Liberal government basically gutted the OMB, I thought, you know, I could do as much advocacy as I want to do in terms of events and showing up to public meetings and, and city council consultations. But these big provincial policy changes are really like they're, they're much more impactful, in my opinion, and they can make a much bigger difference. So I thought I would shift my focus at that time to um, basically radicalizing the provincial government and the staff that I knew at the Ministry of Housing and Municipal Affairs. And I thought that was probably a better um, use of my time at that point. At the same time, coincidentally, in my professional life, I took a job as a developer or working with a developer. I've been working in software for the last number of years. Um, so these two changes, the change in provincial government, a provincial government that I thought was more open to the sort of things that I had been seeing and advocating for and working in the industry, um, both kind of took me away from the, I would say, like public relations type of advocacy we were doing. So yeah, so since then, um, I've, I've been involved, um, I've, I've, I've ran a number of op-eds, I like showing up on podcasts and talking about these things, um, but where I think the, like, the most important levers are, are at the provincial government, and especially in the municipal, um, or the Ministry of Municipal Housing, or of Housing and Municipal Affairs, where I think if you could kind of like move them one, two, three, four percent further in this direction of allowing for more housing supply and of missing middle housing specifically, I think that's uh, that's 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 like a worthwhile advocacy um, focus. So I've been doing a bit of that. Yeah. So my my next question to you was going to be, what are the three things that could be done tomorrow to start fixing the issue? And so you've touched on one of them. Uh, so you can answer that question if you want. But I, there's a follow up question to that: is why none of the politicians are doing what I think they should be doing in, in easing up the, the zoning and the restrictions to allow supply of housing to flow into the market as it's needed. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I'll take the first one on first because very recently the province um, announced the creation of a housing affordability task force um, and basically said like these members, these task force members, they basically sent them off with a mandate to come back with a bunch of ideas for what they could do 
to um, help address this problem. So I, I know some of the members on the task force, and I think a lot about, you know, I think in broad strokes, we've been saying things like relaxed zoning to allow for more housing types, including missing middle housing. But this task force and this mandate gave me an excuse to think about it a little bit more specifically, like what specific policy changes I would like to see. And I wrote an op-ed um, that I then sent to the task force and I sent to my friends at the province to, to see if uh, any of the ideas might get traction. But I have a few ideas, so let me run a few of them by you. So there are a few things that I think the province could do and should do that would not cause a lot of controversy and some that would cause controversy. So I think the ones that don't cause a lot of controversy, maybe you could do those right away. You don't need to wait for an election. Um, so the ones I had in that bucket were, one, it would be great to see. Um, so right now in the city of Toronto, if you propose a, a building that has more than four units, you trigger a site plan uh, approval process which is a much more involved process than simply applying for building permits and you know beginning construction. So if it's four units or less, you don't need to go through site plan control. If it's five units and more, you do. I Even think the if it's should... within the permitted zoning allowances. Correct, yeah. Oh, so even yeah. if you're, so, yeah. so, so site plan control is kind of like secondary to zoning. So zoning, um, I'll save zoning for like my controversial set of changes, which maybe they don't want to do six months ahead of an election, but they can do after that. So mm -hmm. the three things I have pre-election are one, raise that threshold. So maybe it should be like 15 units. You know, if it's 15 units or less, there's no site plan control. You can go straight from any sort of zoning things you need to do, whether it's a full rezoning or variances at the committee of adjustment, you do that. And then you go straight to permits, no site plan control. So that's mm -hmm. number one. That's what, one thing I think they should do. The second thing I think they should do is amend or update the condominium act to allow for, to make it easier to do small scale condos. So in Vancouver, for example, it's very common to see duplexes, triplexes that are ownership units, condominiumized as a strata, whereas in Toronto, it's very rare. These are typically just owned by a property manager or a landlord and rented out. And that's mm -hmm. because it's much harder for us to create condo co corporations um, so that like nobody does it at the small scale. So, so proposal number two is make it easier to have small scale condo and then you know we could facilitate more missing middle scale condo. And then the third thing, you know, you being trained as an architect, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but there's been some discussion in some corners of like the architecture profession around allowing for slightly larger buildings that only have one exit. So right now in Toronto, if you build anything above two stories, you need two exits, two egresses, which means two staircases that are disconnected. And if you're building at the missing middle scale, these are often very tight infill sites. Yeah. Um, that could it could be like a blocker to building what you want to build because there's not enough sellable or leasable square footage, so it just kills the project at all. And and there was a a great architect I forget his name, um, but he released a, a paper as part of I think his master's uh, studies that showed that it, it basically did a cross country comparison where Toronto has the lowest or Canada has the lowest threshold for a two exit requirement. In the U.S., you don't need two exits till you get above five stories. And most European countries, it's even further than that. So I think if oh, we yeah. were to allow... In France, you can have apartment buildings of like eight, 10, even 12 stories. There's only one staircase. Yeah. And if you're building like a high-rise building, this is not a big deal because you're going to have all your points of egress anywhere. It's fine. If you're building a four-story, you know, fourplex, again, having a two exit requirement could be a deal breaker in terms of making the numbers work and making it a feasible project. Yeah, so I think yeah. that's an Ontario building code change that most people wouldn't even notice because it's very in the weeds. It's very wonky, 
the Ontario uh, Architects Association, OAA, has actually come out in favor of this idea. So I think if the province were to enact it, they could show support amongst the relevant professionals. Um, so, that, so that's the third idea. And then the controversial set of ideas, again, to answer your question about what the province should do, is, um, is zoning reform. So right now, uh, in our official plan, you know, most of Toronto's land is covered by the, the neighborhood's land use designation. And the language is that any new development must reflect and reinforce the existing physical character. And I think that that's not a policy that encourages any sort of dynamism or growth, but actually stagnation. Like they call it stability, but it's really stagnation. So I think the province needs to either force the city or just kind of like step in instead of the city and update the official plan to allow for a minimum missing middle housing across across the city. So I'll, I'll pause there to get your reaction and then I'll, I'll share some thoughts on why I think, you know, they haven't done this yet. Well, I'm going to try to uh, to remain polite, but the, the last point you suggested is great because the neighborhood character is such a catch-all term that can mean anything and everything. Yeah. And frankly, most Toronto character, the neighborhoods have no character anyway. Um, yeah. So it's like it's an excuse. It's a, it's a very good catch-all excuse for anemiaism and, and, and stopping... Um, you know the the proper reforms to to uh, to happen, but I think yeah, those are great ideas. I mean, I'm I don't, I'm not a practicing architect, and I can't pretty much say that I've never practiced after school. I practiced for a very brief time, so we're going to say that doesn't count. But right. those make sense. Like you go to any European city, and they build uh, mid-rise buildings with one exit. Uh, one elevator, one staircase, uh, and there's clever, clever ways of dealing with the two egress um, option. I remember I lived in a building in Chicago that had uh, scissor staircases. So they're yeah. basically two staircases that are um, uh, wrapped around each other. So it only takes the, the footprint of one staircase, but you have your two egresses. Right. Um, so there's, there's ways to deal with that. That doesn't work for small buildings, but for larger ones, it works well. Um, and, and then, yeah, the, the, the follow-up question, and I kind of touched on that earlier, but it's why no one wants to do anything of significance, or at least not on the surface. Like, why isn't the mayor of Toronto, who's supposedly um, the champion of, you know, everyone and wants uh, to build a great city, not tackling such a, a low-hanging fruit and doing something about it? Yeah, I mean, I think the sad truth is that we have... Uh, the planning regime that we have because voters, you know, by, by and large want it. So if you think about the sort of people who are most likely to vote in municipal elections, it's older people who are homeowners who live in low rise, stable, quote unquote, neighborhoods who would like their neighborhoods to remain low rise, stable neighborhoods. Um, and, and all you have to do is go to a public meeting or like a consultation on a new uh, real estate development project to see that that is kind of like the dominant sentiment at these meetings. So, you know, unfortunately, I think I don't think this problem gets solved in any meaningful way at the municipal level. I think that Toronto city councillors are captured to a large extent by the sort of people that form residence associations. And, you know, you just have to speak to anybody in the real estate industry and say those words, um, you know, that that immediately conveys this picture of an angry mob who doesn't want to see any change to their neighborhood. So I think that we've we've kind of codified and enacted laws that preserve the character, quote unquote, again, of their neighborhoods because because that's what they're demanding. When I first started paying attention to this issue and diving in again, not not coming from real estate, 
Um, I first blame the planners. Like you go, how can you guys implement these crazy plans that are so bad for actual true city building? Um, and then I took a step back because I started meeting a lot of these planners and they're like, hey, we could only operate within the guidelines that council sets for us. So then I shifted my my anger or like my focus of attack to the counselors. Like, how could you vote for these laws and, and defend these laws that now constrain our planners to enact these crazy rules that don't allow for enough housing to, to accommodate growth? Um, but even then, like you talk to counselors, a lot of them would like to see change, but they're like, hey, if I if I say anything close to what you're saying, you know, I will be immediately voted out of office next election. So ultimately, unfortunately, in a de- democratic system, like this is the will of at least enough people for it to be, you know, the way that things are done. So for that reason, I do think that the provincial government really needs to be the level of government that makes change because the provincial government has a broader mandate and is less focused on like the local neighborhood politics. Mm -hmm. They're they're better able to, you know, really ruffle some feathers and kind of like piss some people off in, in the name of the greater good. So, so that's, that's why since 2018, I've shifted most of my focus in terms of political advocacy to the province. And it's like, look, if you're willing to kind of bulldoze in, in 2018 and say council was supposed to be 47 seats, now it's 25, like use that same bold action to say, Hey, we used to have stable neighborhoods protected. Now we're allowing for missing middle housing. Um, yeah. And the only thing I could say in terms of why they haven't done that yet, I think there's a little bit of a failure of imagination. So I think a lot of a lot of these politicians and a lot of these staffers who aren't from Toronto, they're not from the industry. They just don't really understand the details of of land use planning in Toronto and how bad it really is. Um, and then failure of nerve, like politicians, they like being liked. And I think that could that could sometimes be a curse where sometimes you have to do things where the residents association, the NIMIs will will come out against you and say bad things about you. But, you know, you're doing the right thing for 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 everybody else let's say for younger people or, or new immigrants or, or their future more broadly yeah yeah one of the things that pisses me the 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 off the most is uh, because i'm an immigrant so i i am one of those people who came here to make my life here whatever um no one's advocating for the future of the city the people that are going to come here in the next 20 30 years and are going to make the city or they're going to be the working hands that are going to make it function uh and frankly all those older people that are uh nimbies right now are going to be gone anyway and yeah. so um it, while you were talking at this crazy idea i think toronto city council should have a handful of councillors they're not representing any ward, but representing future residents, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I love that idea. Yeah. You know, you, you elect a few people and, and you figure out how to do that. And, and their mandate is to advocate for the people that aren't here yet, but are going to come, are coming and are going to come in the future. Because um, that's, that's the thing that's missing. There's no foresight. There's no future thinking. It's all about the present and preserving the past. And I think that's a very short-sighted, um, short-sighted view of, of how to deal with that issue. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the problem, right? In a democracy, the future doesn't have a vote, right? There's no franchise for the future. And I think you get it gets even worse. In a system like Toronto's, every council represents a ward, right? And this is as opposed to, for example, Vancouver, where the councillors are considered at large, so they represent the city as a whole. Mm. So when you represent a ward, you become even more attached and captured to some extent by the current local residents. Um, some cities have strong mayor powers where the mayor has more power than your typical councillor or like their vote carries carries more weight or they have more veto ability and that sort of thing. Toronto has a weak mayor system. So 
even if you have this ward system where every council represents a ward, it'd be nice for that to be balanced with a mayor who's able to take on these broader considerations, including consideration for the future. But in Toronto, the mayor is just one vote of 25. Um, so the mayor can't really move the needle. The mayor is able to do what he's able to do by trying to form coalitions and using a soft touch to convince people to come on board. But the mayor is able to force through an agenda just because of how our system is set up. So that's why, again, I, I think you really need a province who understands the extent of the problem, who has, um, who has again, more of a mandate to care about things like economic growth and, and ongoing vitality and dynamity, dyna- dynamism of its cities and to take a more active role in land use planning. Mm-hmm. So because most of this podcast audience is going to be um, very favorable to your ideas, it's you're, you're preaching to the choir. Yeah. What could you tell them um, of things, specific actions they could take to, uh, to advocate for, uh, for, for those issues we've been talking about uh, either at all or more than they're already doing and things that are more likely to have an effect in the short term? Yeah, so I will say that since 2017, you know, despite everything I just said about the city being somewhat of a lost cause, you are actually seeing more, at least, good talk from councillors than you would have three or four years ago. So like two councillors that come to mind, Brad Bradford and Bailau, they both explicitly say they support more missing middle housing types in neighborhoods. This is something that four years ago, nobody was saying. And mm-hmm. I think the reason why they're saying it and why they're able to say it is because there has been a little bit of a grassroots movement to push for more of these ideas. Um, so what I would recommend to the audience is, is the first thing I would say is there's a group called More Neighbors Toronto. It's a, it, it is Toronto's YIMBY group. Yes, in my backyard group. It's kind of like a counterweight to the NIMBY politics of residents associations. So the first thing I would say is like, seek them out. I think it's moreneighbors.ca um, yeah, and on Twitter. That's it. I just looked it up. And, and they get involved in terms of policy proposals to, to all levels of government, but they also like to organize outings um, to public meetings. So anytime a real estate development project requires a rezoning, um, there's this public meeting process where the community is able to come out and share its opinion on the project. COVID has made it so that these meetings are now being hosted online through WebEx and not in like a church basement. So it used to be that these meetings were 100% um, opposition, right? You would only show up if you were to say, I don't want this building in my backyard. It's going to cast a shadow on my front lawn, blah, blah, blah. And now because of groups like More Neighbor Toronto, because people are getting more interested in, in this uh, topic, and because it's, you know, the barrier to attending the meetings has dropped by being online, you are starting to see like 10, 20, you know, in good cases, 30% of the audience advocating for new housing supply and for more development. So I would say get involved in a group like More Neighbors, um, More Neighbors Toronto, MNTO, and show up to public meetings. And, and basically the whole point of this exercise is to give councillors confidence that if they do want to make some policy changes that allows for more housing supply, that there are people who would vote for that, who would continue to support them and that they wouldn't be completely outnumbered by the NIMBY voices. Yeah, and one thing I would add, because I've, I've experienced it myself, uh, at least the counselor in my ward, uh, she does respond to emails and, and suggestions, not always in the right way, at least not in my opinion, but um, there is an ability to have a dialogue, a direct dialogue with your counselor too, and so uh, if you, you know, it's an opportunity to get engaged at the civic level and, and uh, flex your, your voters' muscles, I think that's yeah. important as well. Totally. 
and let them know that you won't vote for them if they don't support so-and-so. That's, that's, that's the whole thing. This is like a, a pressure group dynamic. Residents associations who are typically NIMBY, who typically oppose new development, they've gotten really good at um, having councillors respond to their demands, really. Um, and I think now we need NIMBYs to do the same thing, to get more organized, to make themselves known to the councillors, and to be a little bit disagreeable, to tell their councillors, like, no, this, is not, this attitude is not acceptable. Um, and if you want to continue to enjoy my vote and my support, you need to push for more housing supply. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, I had a bunch of other questions for you, but we've kind of answered most of them already. So um, uh, the, the one more question I have is, uh, do you know, and, and we'll limit the answer to that question to North America, because I think it's more relevant to us. Do you know any city in North America that or is doing things right, or at least moving the right direction that we could look at as an example? I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of th cities that I could think of that are better in some regards and worse in other regards. So I'll use one as an example. So Houston um, has, you know, doesn't have what we would consider traditional zoning. So you could build, there, there's no real separation of uses. In a residential neighborhood, you could build a, you could build a, a restaurant uh, and you could build an office next to that and you could build multifamily next to that. Um, so I think that's interesting and it, and it, and it makes for, um, you know, a more, a more, I don't know, varied pattern in terms of how the city grows and is, and develops. And one thing that people say, you know, to criticize Houston, and I think it's fair criticism is it's a very car centric city. It's very car dependent. And that's largely due, I think, to two big policy choices that the city and the, and the state have made. One is there are minimum lot sizes. Um, so it's hard to get like houses, you know, tightly together and very compact and, and more walkable configurations. And two is just, there's just been a ton of subsidy of highways. So it's basically encouraged sprawl and subsidized sprawl. But Houston um, is a city that uh, was kind of leading the charge in terms of removing minimum parking requirements. And Toronto has recently caught up to that. I think just last month, we got rid of our minimum parking requirements for new yeah, development. Yeah, I heard about that, yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting to see that like a city like Houston, which is thought as a very car centric a city, they, they got there first. So so that's one thing I would I would take a look at them in terms of, you know, the interesting experiments that are taking place with their um, with their lack of zoning. Um, you are starting to see also more action being taken at the state levels. So this dynamic of like NIMBY municipalities requiring a higher level of government to step in and to change things. This is playing out pretty much across North America. Um, so very recently, the California passed uh, a state bill to allow for ADUs, accessory dwelling units, what we call garden suites statewide. Mm -hmm. So that's been interesting. I think we've done similar things here at the province. And, and now you're seeing the city implementing the zoning bylaw changes to reflect that. Um, New York State has recently, there's been a, a Senate bill submitted that would um, set basically a minimum permission for four units of housing on any lot statewide. So this hasn't yet been passed, but the fact that it's been proposed is very interesting. And it, and they took inspiration from a similar bill that was passed in New Zealand um, to basically have like a minimum density set at the higher level of government so that municipalities can't go below it, beneath it. So um, no, no one city. I think there, there are a lot of cool experiments taking place. I would go outside of North America, frankly, if I wanted to really look for inspiration. And I would look at places like Tokyo, where Tokyo zoning is set at the national level. Um, and it's very easy in Tokyo, in terms of zoning at least, to buy a detached house and to turn it into a multi-unit building 
without any sort of process that requires input from your neighbors. Um, and there's no kind of like community veto system in place like we have here. And that's because Tokyo was a rapid growing city in the 80s, faced these same demand pressures, these same great growth pressures that we have. And at some point, the national government said, this is not working. We can't let you know neighbors decide whether or not their neighbors could have any growth take place on, on their properties. And basically uploaded the whole land use planning system to the national government. And I think it's been a successful experiment. And because of that, it's it's the it's probably this the of the major global cities, the one that's had the most the flattest price growth over the last 20 years. It's yeah, that's the, the uh, dirty little secret that few people know about is that uh, real estate prices in Tokyo compared to cities of similar stature are not insane at all. Yeah. It's not New York, London, Paris, or LA or San Francisco. So uh, yeah, I think you have a good point. I think the challenge of looking at um, Western or Asian cities is that they're much less car centric. Mm-hmm. And so it would take a tremendous amount of transformation for uh, for a city like Toronto to become more like those or to take to learn some of the lessons and apply them. Uh, yeah. That, but it's not certainly not impossible. And uh, another thing we could do. So we're thinking about how do you think across geographies where to draw inspiration? We could also look just at our own history. Right? It wasn't that long ago that we allowed for missing middle housing across all old Toronto neighborhoods. If you if you go up and down Palmerston. Um, you'll see a detached house next to a four-story walk-up apartment with 24 units. And that used to be just allowed as of right. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. For, some reason, for some reason, we've made that illegal. So, so yeah, I think there are good inspirations to be found in other cities, but also just looking in our own history when, when, when it was legal to build these housing types, which we still find very kind of attractive and compelling and affordable and all these other things. Like, let's just go back to how we used to do some yeah, of these things. Yeah, and a lot of those buildings that are, were built in the 50s and 60s are very elegant like there's they're they're really good i've been to a few and they're really good and people Um, and because of that people like flock to these neighborhoods they like how it feels they like how it looks yeah yeah, yeah. let's do it let's do it again yeah so uh i guess my last question to you is if you were elected mayor let's say if you were elected uh premier tomorrow what would you do what are the first things you would do to change that yeah personally yeah, so I, I would do something um, uh, that probably probably our premier, or maybe sadly our premier won't do. I would rewrite the official plan in the zoning bylaw. I would rewrite it with a couple of uh, staff, and then I would go to the city and say, this is new, your new bylaw. There's no consultation. There's no appeal. This is it. So so what would I change? I mean, I would, I would, uh, I would allow for missing middle housing types throughout the throughout the yellow belt, which is kind of the yellow part of the official plan map, the neighborhoods land use designation. Yeah. Um, in, in our zoning bylaw, we have five, I believe, five or six resident residential zones. We have R, the old city of Toronto R, which allows for, in theory, detached house, semi-detached, triplex, fourplex, all the way up to to four story walk up apartments. And then we have these other zones like RD, detached house only, RS detached or semi-detached only. And basically I would consolidate all these residential zones into R. So all these housing types that are allowed in R, that would be kind of the default across the city. Um, I would also expand expand, um, expand the mixed use areas in the official plan or commercial residential CR in the zoning bylaw. So we could have more like corner stores in our neighborhoods and, and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I would basically just kind of like take these documents that every time they change, they only grow in volume. They only increase in length. 
and I would chop them by like, you know, 80% and it would just be a lot easier to build a lot more stuff um, in a way that, that reflects kind of like market feedback loops, not just, you know, what some planner in some windowless office thinks that we, we could handle. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's another question just popped up in my head. Um, cause I think it's a critical question that few people address. What's your, what, what's your take on, uh, development charges? Yeah. So development charges, the idea, the philosophy is that growth should pay for growth, right? So if I build a new building, I need to charge somewhere between 25 to $50,000 per unit to build more parks, more pools, more whatever. I have, I'm of two minds. So, so on, on one end, I think that it's, It's not really fair. It's basically taking the cost of new public infrastructure and putting it on the backs only of new residents. And basically, if you live in a detached house, you'll get a new park, you'll get a new community center, and you have to contribute nothing to its construction, right? It's all the new, all the new units that are paying for it. So I think it's bad for that reason. On the other hand, because our politics is so captured by NIMBYs, I think it's kind of good to have a way to basically bribe your counselor <laughs> to, to be a little bit more lenient. So counselors might want to really fight your project, but you'll say, hey, we're going to appeal this to the province if you fight us. So why don't you not fight us? And we're just going to give you a bunch of money to do great things that you could then use as like, you know, it's, it's kind of like you can go back to your constituents and say that you've got this as a bounty from us. And, um, and it's hard to think through like what the political calculus is there, but, but maybe it's good to have some way to bribe counselors to be a little bit more lenient on, on development. So Yeah, yeah I don't know it's an interesting take on it because I've always thought of them as unfair because they just increase the cost of building anything. They're totally, so, totally unfair. So much. Yeah. Um, and especially on smaller projects, like because those fees are so high, it, they, they make a lot of small and medium sized projects completely unfeasible. And that's why everybody's building those giant towers because they're the only ones who make sense from an e- economics perspective. Um, so maybe there's a middle ground, you know, maybe you, you don't charge them up until a certain size or you charge less, or if, um, if the developer is willing to do things that are good from an urban planning perspective, then you waive them or, you know, use them as an incentive to get what you want, but charging that much, uh, I think you make a really good point. It's very unfair that new residents or new owners are tasked with, paying for all the infrastructure when everybody benefits from it. It's, it's completely antithetic to the idea of a democracy. So yeah. uh, I don't know if I, I have we, a, a definite answer, but it's an interesting thing to think about for sure. Well, at a minimum, I would, pa- I would pause like uh, any rate hikes. So the development charges have doubled over the last four years. And now it looks like council might go on a new four-year adventure of doubling them once again. So I would, I would not do that. I would, I would pause them at a minimum and, and basically like not touch them for, for as long as possible. Like certainly not move them up at, at all. I'm just curious on what grounds did, did they double them? Like how do they even justify that? Growth needs to pay for growth. So as the city grows, the city is very bad at updating its infrastructure to accommodate growth. So if you think about like sanitary lines, stormwater lines, The city's not good at upgrading these, first of all, at all. And second of all, on time and on budget, like Western governments generally, this is a whole other topic, are very bad at building things. Um, so, you know, the way that they get around, you know, their inability to do things effectively, they just raise more money from development. And over the last four years, if you look at the rates and the development charges, there's a Tr- city of Toronto development charges page, they've doubled over the last four years. 
And now we've we've wrapped up this cycle of doubling, and now there's discussion in committee and in council to start on another four year um, doubling cycle. That's is, crazy. Crazy. Because yeah. anyone with half a brain would realize that that's a direct impact on housing affordability. So if you're yeah. a politician who supports those, but then on the other side you say you want more affordable housing, you're just bullshitting people. It makes no sense at all. Um, uh, Totally agree. Yeah, I think totally that's, a, that's a debate for another day. Uh, look, I, I really want to thank you for your uh, incredible generosity and, and amazing insights. I think it was a very fruitful conversation and hopefully only the first of many. Uh, totally. So thank you very much for being on the show and hopefully uh, we'll get to do that again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks for ha having me and I'm, I'm happy to come back anytime. My pleasure. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.